Couple-Centricity, Polyamory, and Colonialism. This post was originally published on July 27, 2014 on the Critical Polyamorist blog. And I have a short new introduction for readers and listeners. My Critical Polyamorist blog that I began writing in 2013 is largely dormant now. I could no longer keep my non-monogamy analyses separate from everything else I'm thinking and writing about. Thus, I will occasionally migrate content from the Critical Polyamorous to here with the added benefit of Substack's audio podcast option. All of the work that I do, be it interrogating certain genomic and other scientific activities, interrogating compulsory monogamy in marriage, or interrogating assumptions about nature, quote unquote, is really about interrogating the violently imposed worldviews and structures of the Eurocentric settler colonial state. This is why I decided to gather and link different topics together under the broader umbrella of this Unsettle newsletter. Unsettle is dedicated to unsettling the narratives and assumptions of settler colonial thinkers and structures through an examination of Indigenous affairs, cultural politics, and decolonial thought and initiatives across different but ultimately related topics and fields. At the end of this post, I will note any factual updates since this piece was first written and posted in July 2014, when I lived in Austin, Texas. I now live in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Of course, my thinking on this topic has evolved a bit since this post was originally written, but I have not revised it to reflect more updated nuance uh, or terminology. My thinking today largely adheres to these words as I first wrote them. Okay, I'll begin now with the original post. Several evenings ago, I attended a class and conversation on open relationships at a feminist sex shop in an increasingly trendy area of my mid-continent city. The class was for the open relationship curious, or beginners. Although I've been at this for about 19 months, I'm still a beginner. My fabulous fellow woke woman of color, sex educator, friend Davina, led the course. She also does community activism on a range of other social issues that entangle and go beyond topics of sexuality. In this largely white, middle-class poly community where I shy away from poly group events because I feel like a cultural outsider, I willingly submit to Davina's skilled, effusive, and politically sophisticated leadership. Like me, she thinks about the role of compulsory monogamy in propping up a heteronormative, patriarchal, and colonial society. I can jump right in with her, into the politically deepest part of a conversation on this stuff, and she's right there with me. Plus, she's got years more on-the-ground experience in open relationships than I do. This particular class was aimed at a more general audience, however— tackling issues that many Poly 101 classes do, namely handling jealousy and the kind of never-ending communication that is a hallmark of healthy polyamory. While the heightened racial and cultural diversity at this meeting was encouraging, yay, feminist sex shop, another cultural bias nonetheless loomed large at this event. That is, the couple-centric culture that pervades our city's polyamory scene and our broader society. Coupledom is often the foundational assumption that anchors many polyamory discussions. Topics for conversation at this class included why 
open the primary relationship, and then ground rules for the couple to consider who can and cannot be a candidate for an additional relationship, mutual friends, exes, what kinds of sex with others does the couple agree is okay? You get the drift. As a single poly person, I sat there feeling feisty and thinking, what are we single polys just out here populating the world to sexually and emotionally serve individuals and couples? We get the honor of being on lists of appropriate partners, eligible secondaries or not. Our bodies and hearts and desires get to be the objects of couples rules about what's allowed or not. It's easy to feel ancillary in this type of poly scene, a sort of snap-on component to a more permanent, a more legitimate entity. No doubt, many polyamorous people in primary relationships struggle against hierarchy between that primary relationship and outside relationships. After all, the structure of the couple allows only so much. The language of primary and secondary only allows so much. Even in a polyamorous worldview that seeks to undo so many of the repressions and exclusions of monogamy, the normativity of the couple itself goes unquestioned by far too many polyamorous people. Yet its primacy in our society is engendered of the same institutions and unquestioned values that produce the monogamy we resist. Like monog... <laughs> Excuse me. Like monogamy, the couple entity as central to the nuclear family is bound up with the sex negativity that polyamorous people battle, as we argue for and live lives in which sex and love are not viewed in such finite terms, although time certainly is, and thus not saved for only one other person. Like monogamy, the couple, especially when legally married, is legitimated and rewarded at every turn U.S. health insurance eligibility, clearer child custody arrangements, tax filing benefits, and general public recognition and validation. In our society, this type of arrangement is assumed as the logical end point, what we are all looking for or should be looking for. One of my favorite bloggers, Solo Polly, has an excellent post on this relationship escalator. That is, the expected progression, the first meeting, courtship, sex, presenting as a couple in public, intimate exclusivity, establishing a routine together, commitment defined by these steps, culminating in legal marriage that is supposed to last until one person dies. Solo Polly also has a second related post on couple privilege and a guest post on couple-centric polyamory, which links to the secondary's bill of rights. I'm posting that one on my refrigerator. The fight for recognition of same-sex marriage also testifies to the pervasive couple-centricity of our culture. The dyad for so long opposite sex and now increasingly also same-sex is portrayed as the fundamental unit of love and family. It is a key structure used to try and gain what should be fundamental human and civil rights for all of our citizens. I am reminded of biology textbooks that describe the gene as, quote, the fundamental unit of life, unquote. An instance of gene fetishism 
in which molecules come to stand simplistically for much more complex social biological relations for nature and nurture that actually shape one another in all kinds of interesting and unpredictable ways in addition to genetic essentialism we have in our culture couple essentialism we fetishize the couple making it stand at the heart of love and family which are actually the product of much more complex social biological relations the mon the monogamous couple not exclusively but you know we could also talk about the polyamorous couple and narrower definitions or narrower notions of family have a hard time containing and often sustaining the great complexity of relations that we humans feel and forge as we attempt to connect with one another throughout life as with genes i am not saying the couple produces only myths and master narratives like molecular sequences there is sometimes beauty and profoundness in what the couple produces but just as genes do not alone embody the enormity of life despite the assertions of too many scientists and pop culture more generally neither should the couple and its offshoot nuclear family embody in its most essential form the enormity of human love physical desire and family a final note on same-sex marriage gays don't always do marriage like straights expect them to to give but one example of many their greater acceptance of ethical non-monogamy i see this as another upside of marriage equality in addition to it being the right thing to do for same-sex couples from this non-monogamous point of view it may help us revise marriage into a less repressive institution of course it was not always so that the monogamous couple ideal reigned in public vows a history of marriage and nation nancy cott that c-o-t-t argues with respect to the u.s that the christian model of lifelong monogamous marriage was not a dominant world view until the late 19th century that it took work to make monogamous marriage seem like a foregone conclusion and that people had to choose to make marriage the foundation for the new nation in the importance of being monogamous historian sarah carter also shows how quote marriage was part of the national agenda in canada the marriage fortress was established to guard the canadian way of life unquote. at the same time that monogamous marriage was solidified as ideal and central to both u.s and canadian nation building indigenous peoples in these two countries were being viciously restrained both conceptually and physically inside colonial borders and institutions that included reservations slash reserves residential schools and churches and missions all designed to save the man and kill the indian part of saving the indians from their savagery meant pursuing the righteous monogamous couple-centric nuclear family institution land tenure rights were attached to marriage in ways that tied women's economic well-being to that institution indeed the nuclear family is the most commonly idealized alternative to the tribal extended family context in which i was raised as for many indigenous peoples prior to colonization the fundamental indigenous social unit of my people was the extended kin group 
including plural marriage. With hindsight, I can see that my road to ethical non-monogamy began early in my observations in tribal communities of mostly failed monogamy, extreme serial monogamy, and disruptions to nuclear family. Throughout my growing up, I was subjected by both whites and natives ourselves to narratives of shortcoming and failure, descriptions of Native American broken families, teenage pregnancies, unmarried mothers, and other failed attempts to paint a white nationalist middle-class veneer over our lives. I used to think it was the failures to live up to that ideal that turned me off, and that's why I ran for coastal cities and higher education, why I asserted from a very early age that I would never get married. Now I see that I was suffocating under the weight of the concept and practice of a normative middle-class nuclear family, including heteronormative coupledom, period. I was pretty happy as a kid in those moments when I sat at my great-grandmother's dining room table with four generations and toward the end of my great-grandmother's life, five generations. We would gather in her small dining room with its burnt orange linoleum and ruffled curtains, at the table beside the antique china cabinet, people overflowing into the equally small living room, all the generations eating, laughing, playing cards, drinking coffee, talking tribal politics, and eating again. The children would run in and out. I would sit quietly next to my grandmothers, hoping no one would notice me. I could then avoid playing children's games and listen instead to the adults' funny stories and wild tribal politics. Couples and marriages and nuclear families got little play there. The collectives, both our extended family and the tribe, cast a much wider, more meaningful and complexly woven net. The matriarch of our family, my great-grandmother, was always laughing. She would cheat at cards and tell funny, poignant stories about my great-grandfather who died two decades before. Aunts and uncles would contribute their childhood memories to build on those stories. A great-grandchild might have been recognized for some new creative, academic, or athletic accomplishment. My mother would often bring the conversation back to tribal or national politics. The newest baby in the room would be doted on as a newly arrived human who chose this family. The mom might be 18 or 20 and unmarried and would have help. And she would be told to go back to school or find a career track to better her life for her baby. Too many in my family faced life choices more restricted than mine are now. Others were simply unwilling to sacrifice a life lived daily among extended family and tribe, as I have done. From where I stand, it looks like most of my extended family members have more security in that small town family and tribal community or in the coherent, densely populated urban Indian community in which I spent part of my childhood than they do in Eurocentric traditions of nuclear family and marriage. On the other hand, my security and primary partnership is the educational and professional escalator that I ride and climb to ever more opportunities in high-up cities. Paradoxically, in seeking security outside of one colonial imposition, marriage and nuclear family, although I also tried that for a good while and wasn't so skilled at it, I chose a highly individualistic path 
that enmeshes me in different sets of colonial institutions. All of those corporate, nonprofit, government, and academic institutions in which I have worked. I also have a global indigenous and professional network that brings tremendous meaning to my life. But individuals among them are rarely here at night when I need someone to share words, laughter, food, and touch with. I need to build some sort of extended kin group here in this city where I live. I doubt that coupledom, mine or others, combined with quote-unquote outside relationships, will ever suffice in this context. Building something more collective is my desire and my challenge. Despite my focus on couple centricity and polyamorous world, some polyamorous people refer to their intimate networks, their extended, their extended made families as tribes, quote unquote. But even those individuals are an ill fit for me for cultural reasons I've written about in earlier posts entitled ISO Feminist Indian, that's NDN, Cowboys, and Polly, Not Pagan, and Proud. I learn especially open communication lessons from polyamorous world, but I've made few real friends there. I look more to Indigenous peoples for partial models, and I continue to seek non-Indigenous people in this city who don't fit the existing polyamorous cultural mode, but who are committed to open relationships. Alas, it is exhausting being a minority within a minority, but I can never resist a challenge. One final insight. Indigenous colleagues that I admire speak and write of decolonizing love. For example, the Nitachimowin blog of University of Victoria graduate student Kirsten Lindquist, who is Cree and Métis. I obviously love her focus of decolonial analysis on relationships. It is a generative framework for pushing us to articulate a better world. But my slightly cynical aging self doesn't quite believe that we can decolonize, meaning to withdraw from or dismantle colonialism. We live inside a colossal colonial structure that took most of the world's resources to build. Does not every maneuver against colonialism occur in intimate relationship to its structures? There is no outside. Deep inside the shadows and shifting or cracking walls of that edifice. I don't anymore see my families and tribes failures at lasting monogamy and nuclear family as failure. I see us experimenting, working incrementally with tools and technologies that we did not craft combined with indigenous cultural templates in any open space we can find to build lives that make any sense to us at all. As ever, the critical polyamorist. August 2021 update. Kirsten Lindquist is now a PhD student in the Faculty of Native Studies, University of Alberta, where I teach, she is also my co-producer and a co-founder of the Edmonton-based storytelling show, Teepee Confessions. You can read more about her here. And that link is teepeeconfessions.com. And that is teepee spelled T-I-P-I. So teepeeconfessions.com forward slash about forward slash. Thanks for reading and or listening.